You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. But let me ask you this. How many of you know a guy by the name of Judas? Anyone know a guy named Judas? No one? That's what I kind of thought. And I, and I think we get... Why? But it's interesting, because if you actually look at the meaning, the meaning of the word of, of Judas's name, it's, it's actually quite nice. It means to be praised or to be celebrated. That's nice, right? Yet for Emily and I, during each one of our three pregnancies, we never once considered the name Judas. And I, and I don't think we're alone in that you know, feeling. I know some of you are, are pregnant right now, and I, I doubt you're, you know, contemplating, should we name our child Judas? Nothing wrong with that. But I googled it. And, and guess how many boys in the United States were given the name Judas in 2020? Any guesses? Three? 200? Matthias? Six. Matthias is the closest. I forget price and right. Can you go lower? I forget how that works. But the, the correct answer is 11. There were 11 boys in our country named Judas this past year. So not that many, right? And, and on, the, on this website, I don't know how they get this information, but it says that Judas ranks as the 5,379th boy name by popularity. Chosen at a rate of 0.0004% of the time. So it's simply just not a name that we choose. In fact, I don't even think we name our dogs or our pets Judas, do we? Because Judas, as we know, is synonymous with treason. If you call someone a Judas, you're saying, well, they're going to betray you. They're going to stab you in the back. And this all comes from the biblical account of Judas. In fact, we, we look upon Judas in the same way that perhaps we look upon like Hitler or Osama bin Laden, like men deserving of the darkest pits of hell. But Peter, not that way, right? In, in fact, just about every story about heaven, like who's there at the gate to welcome you in? Peter, right? We, we exalt Peter. We name our kids Peter. We place Peter in heaven. But we condemn Judas. We name our enemies Judas, and we place Judas in hell. Yet, both these men, in the hours, as Ruby just read, in the hours leading up to the death of Jesus, commit the same sin. They both very publicly betray Jesus. Two different men committing the same sin, yet two drastically different outcomes to their lives. One goes on to become the leader of Jesus' church, right? And the other goes out and tragically takes his own life. So, So what made the difference? Why does Peter go on to do great things for the kingdom of God while Judas goes out and takes his own life? That the sin is the same, yet the outcomes are drastically different. Why? Well, it's this question I'm entrusting 
that God reveals to our hearts the answer by the power of his word and by his spirit. Let's turn our eyes to Jesus one more time. Father, we come to you needy, asking that you'd open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We want to desperately be more like you. Change us, we pray. Allow us to listen to your words. In your name we pray, amen. So the question set out before us is what made the difference in the outcome of Peter and Judas's life? So let's take a look at both of these individuals, first Peter and then Judas. And as we do so, uh, allow me to set the stage as we, as we look at chapter 26. It's a long chapter. Many things have happened. But as we know, as you kind of let your eyes fall on it, you can remember with me, at some point in the evening after this Passover meal, Jesus and his 12 disciples come, or 11 disciples come into the garden to pray. And soon after entering the garden, we see that Judas, along with this large, like, armed mob, comes and finds Jesus and has him arrested. And after he's arrested here in verse uh, 56, we see that all the disciples flee. And then we see that Jesus is brought to a trial in the home of the high priest. And then we see in verse 58 that Peter actually comes back. Also John, but Peter comes back to see how it will end for Jesus. So, so here's Peter in the courtyard of the home of this trial that's happening for Jesus. And the courtyard would have been in the center of the home with the entire like home structure like looking into the courtyard. And here's Peter sitting by the fire. And, and I think the questions are like, man, did, did, was Peter able to hear these false testimonies after false testimonies that were brought to Jesus that night? I, I don't know. Was, was Peter able to hear the verbal mockery and the physical abuse that Jesus was receiving? Did, did he hear and see Jesus' face being spat upon, as Matthew says, happened, or clubbed with fists? Again, I don't know. I don't know what Peter saw or heard that night, but I do believe that as he sat there at that fire, that he would have felt this great hostility and hatred towards Jesus by this angry crowd. And so as we walk through the record of Peter's famous denial, consider that. And then notice the progression of Peter's denial that Matthew lays out. And we see that Peter goes from just pretending like, I'm really confused at what's happening right now, to, to, to just flat out lying, to lastly just acting out in shameful and sinful Ways. Look with me at verse 69. It says, A servant girl comes up to Peter and says, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. And again, being, being weary of, of being identified with Jesus in this crowd, right? How does Peter respond? He, he acts as, as like he's confused. He says um, in verse 70, I, I do not know what you mean. Like that's an inappropriate response to like a question that was asked doesn't make any sense. I do not know what you mean. So, so Peter's acting confused of what's, what's, what's being said of him. So now as we go into verse 71, he, he just flat out lies. And again, it's a servant girl speaking to other bystanders, and Peter just hears what's being said there in verse 71. What's being said is, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter begins to deny and just lie 
As we see his response there in verse 72, he says, I do not know the man. He goes from confused to just lying. To lastly, here in verse 73, I think as suspicion is probably growing around the campfire, right? Others now come up to Peter. It says, bystanders come up and say to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And in this moment, Peter takes his denial to a whole new level, right? He, he begins vigorously denying, even invoking, it says, curses upon himself. Perhaps saying something like, if I'm lying about this Jesus, like, may God strike me dead and send me to hell. Like, that's the force of what Peter is saying. Words that were meant to be shocking, which they were. You see, in a lot of ways, I think he wanted to confirm to these people, this angry mob, that he could not be a disciple and act and talk like the way he was acting and talking. Within a short amount of time, Peter's denial moves from bad to worse to unthinkable. From pretending like I'm confused what's happening in this moment to I'm just lying about it to acting out in shameful and sinful ways. And no sooner had Peter cursed himself than a rooster, we're told, in verse 74, begins to crow. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You see, Jesus was right. Peter had fallen away. Just as Jesus predicted he would just a few short hours ago. Earlier in the evening, of this same evening, back in verse 31, if you go back, travel with me. Jesus was talking to all of his disciples and said in verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night. But look how Peter responds in verse um, 33. Peter responds to Jesus saying, though they all fall away, though these other disciples will fall away, I will never fall away. But here's Jesus' prediction, verse 34. Jesus says to Peter, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. There's the prediction. And then you got to love Peter. The audacity to respond to Jesus in this moment and says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter has made in this moment just a brash, spectacular uh, statement in front of all these other disciples. In a lot of ways, just like boasting of his courage, of his fortitude, of his grit, of his uh, just arrogantly claiming that, in fact, Jesus, you got it wrong. I'd never deny Jesus because I'm made of a different type of stuff. Though these weaker disciples may deny you, I am, I'm different. I got something else going on. I have it, what it takes to stand strong. But we see as the rooster crowed, Peter discovered something. That he was a lot less sure-footed, courageous, special, spiritual, as what he had thought. Not only have 
he proved just how foolish he really was, but Peter in this moment deserts his friend. And he denies and betrays the Son of God. Friends, this fall of Peter should serve as a warning. Should serve as a warning to the headstrong and to the confident. For the portrait of Peter is a tell of what happens when we think too much of ourselves. And to Peter's credit, he, he did kind of follow through on what he owed, right? When the, when the angry mob comes in the garden, clearly outnumbered, what does he do? He grabs his sword and begins like swinging, lops off an ear. Like he's ready to fight to the death. And when all the other disciples abandon Jesus in that moment after his arrest, like Peter does return to this angry, hostile crowd, to the trial, to be near to Jesus. Yet Peter's self-confidence and self-strength could only take him so far. He'd risked his life already this night, right? But even this brash, bold-necked Peter arrived at a tipping moment where it was too much even for him. And in that moment, too great for Peter's own strength, he fails and does the unthinkable that betrays Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, man, let's learn from him. Let's learn from his life. For Peter, so sure of himself, hear this, he convinced himself that he needed nothing of Jesus and trusted in himself. Let me say that again. Peter, so sure of himself, convinced he needed nothing of Jesus and trusted in himself. But look where it led. Failure, sin, betrayal. And this is not a cheap shot at Peter. Believe me, Peter is my all-time favorite person in Scripture, obviously outside of Jesus. Because as greatly as Peter screws up in the Gospels or in Acts, as often as he sticks his his foot in his mouth, like, he always, he never stays down and defeated, but in humility, he always returns back to Jesus. And we see in God's grace that even Peter, a sinful, broken man, is greatly used in God's kingdom. And so if for a moment you doubt that perhaps some past failure or past sin defines you as useless for God, reject that thought. That's not true. And what I love about digging into Peter's life is that we can read this historical narrative of Peter in the Gospels. We can read about his life in Acts, while at the same time keeping another Bible open of, of his two letters that he wrote to the exile church, First and Second Peter. And we can see what he's written there as well. And when we read his word, his words in First and Second Peter, they really his 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 words like burst to life, knowing what Peter experienced in these historical narratives. For example, in First Peter chapter five, it's on the screen here. Peter says this: "Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour." In other words, Peter's saying, don't be like me. Remember me in the garden? Rather than being watchful, rather than joining Jesus in prayer, Jesus invites him in prayer. And despite being warned that, Peter, you're going to fall away, what does Peter do? He sleeps. 
And by the time the rooster awoken him from this slumber of self-confidence, Peter has nearly been devoured, placing this curse upon his life. And had it not been for the mercy of the Lord to awaken him with the sound of the rooster, who knows where this pathway of self-confidence would lead Peter. Friends, may we not live in accordance to the assumptions we make on ourselves and our self-ability and our strength, but may we live in accordance to the promises of God. Our self-confidence can only take us so far, but the promises of God lead us to eternal life. Which is why Peter opens his first letter with these words, saying his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whose power? God's power. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which God has granted to us his precious and very great what? Promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Does that sound crazy to your ears? That we can be partakers of the divine nature? What does that mean? I don't know exactly, but I want it. And how does that happen? Is it through self-confidence, self-ability? No. It's through the precious and very great promises of God. So we need to ask ourselves, where does our confidence lie? Where does our confidence lie to stand up and defeat temptation and sin in our lives? From where is our confidence to keep Christ center in our life? As we move through this world, is it rooted in our self-ability, our self-knowledge, our self-power, our self-wealth? Or is it rooted in the completed and finished work of Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb? You see, Peter had to learn the depths of his own self. He did not know the weakness of himself that Jesus so well knew about Peter and knows about us as well. That's why there's trials in our lives. You see, so sure of himself, Peter, in that moment, completely abandoned the hope and purposes that God had set forth within him. And can we just be honest right now? Do we not relate to Peter's denial? Do we not relate to Peter's denial? I can come on Sundays here to church, and it's comfortable, kind of easy to be a Christian, right? To sing these songs with the band, to open my Bible, to even confess sins. But what about when I leave this facility and go back into my neighborhood or into my office? What about then? It becomes a whole lot tougher, doesn't it? To be a Christian in those environments. And perhaps consciously or perhaps unconsciously, we are more prone or more apt to just take our faith undercover, a secret service agent of the sort. And so around the office where you work or in a block party in your neighborhood or in family gatherings at, at a holiday, do you, do you purposely like, or maybe unconsciously like hide your Christianity? Don't talk about that part of your life. And when you're asked about your faith, does perhaps it maybe matches Peter, cloaked in confusion of like, I'm not really sure what you're asking me here. 
Or maybe just a straight out lie. I, I do not know that man. That's convicting to me. And we need to remember Jesus' words that he spoke in Luke's gospel when he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Those are stern words. You see, our, friend, our, our self-confidence will only take us so far, but the promises of God take us to eternal life. Which is why the last words that Jesus gives us to his disciples is, The promise, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Peter, so sure of himself, convinced he needed nothing of Jesus, but Christian, that's a lie. It leads to betrayal and sin every time. Christian, you need every part of Jesus, his promises and his spirit. So that's Peter. What about Judas? What about Judas? Well, there's much speculation, excuse me, there's much speculation about Judas and his motive in betraying Jesus. We're not necessarily told what the motive was. Perhaps it was greed. We know he loves money. Was it it greed and, and love of money? Was it perhaps a disillusionment that he was disappointed that Jesus never launched a military assault against Rome? Or maybe he, he just convinced himself that, man, if I put Jesus in a tough spot, like then Jesus will be forced to like assert his power and authority and like overthrow Rome and these religious leaders. Maybe he bought into that idea. I, whatever the motive, the outcome comes as a shock to Judas. Look with me in verse 3 of chapter 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, well, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. We see there in verse 3 that when Judas is told that the chief priests and the elders have condemned Jesus to death, it says Jesus, or Judas changed his mind. And this is a singular word in the Greek uh, used elsewhere to express regret or remorse. Regret or remorse. It's not the word for repentance. And that's, that, that's a different Greek word, and, and that's important for us just to know. For as Jesus' death sentence is told to Judas, he's filled with remorse, we're told. He's filled with regret, Even I think he has a deep sense of guilt. But though he's filled with regret, overcome by remorse, though he has, I think, guilt and shame, we're we're told that he does not repent. And there's a wide difference, as I think we know, right, between regret and repentance. And Paul talks about that difference in in a familiar passage, saying godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. I think we all have experienced this, I think. Regret just like eats away at you, doesn't it? Like you sit and you stew, like, man, I wish I would have done it differently. But it doesn't necessarily say I'm going to change. You just regret that it happened. 
And, and this is why politicians or celebrities or, or famous people, like Urban Meyer in this last week, like over and over when they're caught in a scandal, they say something like, I regret what happened. Or I regret that they got hurt. That's kind of a meaningless apology, right? That's different than saying, this was my fault. I accept responsibility. I ask for your forgiveness. I'm committed to change. There's a difference there. Feeling bad for your actions and doing a few things about it doesn't equal repentance. As we know from Scripture, true repentance is turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus. It's coming to an end of your solutions, your idea, and your agenda. And uh, Pastor John Piper helps us understand this difference by this quote by saying this, Worldly regret is when you feel sorry for something you did because it starts to backfire on you and leads to humiliation or punishment. It's the reflex of a proud or fearful ego. That's all about self, isn't it? But godly regret is the reflex of a conscience that has wounded God's ego, not its own. Godly regret grieves that God's name has come into disrepute. In other words, regret's all about yourself, you, and repentance is all about God. And regret's not our aim as Christ followers, repentance is. And so sadly, rather than turning to God and repentance and faith, Judas comes up with his own idea, right? He comes up with his own idea to make amends, and he decides he's going to return this money to the chief priests and elders. And that turns out to be a grave mistake because these religious leaders care nothing for Judas. They care nothing for the burden of guilt he's carrying. And they say so as much, right? They say, what is this to us? See to it yourself. They don't care about Judas. And in this moment, not having his like, crushing weight of guilt appeased or amended, in this overwhelming state of misery and seeing no way out of what he's caused, Judas tragically ends his life. See, this is the portrait of Judas, a man so unsure, a man so unsure of himself that he's convinced that he deserves nothing of Jesus, so he puts an end to his life. He's convinced he deserves nothing of Jesus, and it's terribly tragic. For how many times over the past three years had Judas seen the overwhelming compassion of Jesus towards the sinner. How many times? Had Jesus returned to Jesus and not the religious leaders, I believe he would have found Jesus' embrace of compassion and love, as we all do when we come to Jesus in repentance. This is a portrait not too far off from ourselves, is it? How many of us, like Judas, believe our sin is too great to be forgiven? Our brokenness, that we're too broken to be put back together. How many of us, like Judas, believe there's nothing worth loving about ourselves? How many of us, like Judas, believe our past failures define us, that we're useless to God? These are direct lies fed from the enemy. But Judas was convinced of this. Judas was convinced he believed nothing of Jesus, and he ended his life. 
When you believe those things, it will always tragically end for you. But it doesn't have to be that way. There's another way, a better way, that leads to life and that starts and ends with Jesus. The question is, what made the difference between Peter and Judas? They both witnessed the same miracles. They both listened to the same sermons. They both walked the same roads as Jesus. They both committed the same sin. Yet Peter finds restoration and forgiveness and Judas does not. What's the difference? It has nothing to do with their sin and everything to do with how they looked upon and believed Jesus to be. Let me point out one small yet consequential detail of Peter's denial. This is really important. The moment the rooster crowed, if we go to Luke's account, Luke tells us that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That the Lord turned and looked at Peter. There's no record that any words were spoken, just that their eyes had met. And that was enough because the effect on Peter, as we see in Matthew's account, he, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Sorrow. Imagine yourself in Peter's skin in this moment. You're, you're, you're vigorously denying Jesus, placing curses on yourself, saying, I do not know this man. And then Jesus, evidently nearby, in this home, he turns, a face that's been spat upon, dripping in saliva, a face that's been beaten, clubbed, and bruised, and battered. But it's a face that turns and looks at you as you utter those words, I do not know this man. Only a person with unfiltered hatred towards Jesus could withstand a look like that. Peter could not. He becomes undone. Because the horror of his betrayal breaks upon Peter. And so that's Peter. But as we examine the moment of Judas's betrayal, it's similar but yet vastly different. It, it, we look in, in verse 49 and 50 of chapter 26. As Judas comes in the garden, it says, and he, Judas comes to Jesus at once and says, greetings, rabbi. And I think David pointed this out last week, but every time Judas is addressing Jesus as rabbi, which isn't wrong, it's, it's correct, but it's never Lord. In fact, he's the only disciple never to call Jesus Lord. And it says, and Judas kissed Jesus. And Jesus said to him, friend, do you do what you came to do? In this moment of betrayal for Judas, as Jesus looked on him, as Judas came in to kiss him, Jesus looked on him. Judas is unmoved. He's resolved. He's determined. He's plowing forward with his plan. Yet in the moment of Peter's betrayal, as Jesus looks upon Peter, Peter becomes undone. Streams of tears, knowing he's betrayed the Son of God. What made the difference between Peter and and Judas, it's, it's their love for Jesus. The difference was how they looked upon and responded to Jesus. Jesus or Judas looked upon Jesus as nothing more than another human being, a rabbi, a teacher. 
but never as God. Peter looked upon Jesus as the Son of God, his Lord and Savior. And friend, here today, how you look upon Jesus, how you respond to Jesus will determine your heaven or your hell. Let me ask you this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And the answer to that question is of greatest importance to your life. And although these stories of, of Peter and Judas like come to the forefront of the narrative, I, I don't want you to miss the larger, grander, more important movement of what's happening in this narrative. That Jesus, despite his disciples' failures here, that the narrative, is Jesus is moving towards the cross. Jesus is moving, rushing towards the cross. And this is important because it's at the foot of the cross where we find the deepest revelation of Jesus' own heart. At the cross, Jesus declares, our sin no longer has to be the end of us. Amen? At the cross, Jesus declares, our sin no longer has to define us. Amen? At the cross, Jesus declares, our sin no longer spells our end of uselessness for the kingdom of God. Amen? You know this heart of Jesus today. And I love, I've appreciated my read through Gentle and Lowly, uh, and, I, and I appreciate how he's helped me embrace the heart of Jesus. He says this in actually the very first chapter. He says, we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy or a little girl reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. If you've got small kids, you can visualize this moment, right? Something disgusting that they're going to touch. Their face is screwed up. They've cautiously, cautiously extended an arm. As they touch it, they give a yelp of disgust upon contact, and they instantly withdraw. You've probably seen this moment, right? And we picture often the risen Christ approaching us with this severe and sour disposition. But the author says this, but Jesus does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numb sufferers. Such an an embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. And consider what we've seen as we've gone through Matthew, right? Time and time again, what does Jesus do when he sees the unclean? What is Jesus' first impulse every time he comes across a prostitute or a leper? Jesus moves not, not um, away, but he moves in towards with a heart of compassion and kindness and love. We see time and time again, Jesus spends time with the sinner, the outcast. We see Jesus touch the diseased and the sick. And we see that whenever Jesus touches an unclean sinner, Jesus doesn't become unclean, but the unclean become clean. You see, this is the power of the cross and the empty tomb, and this is the heart of Jesus. Do you know it? Peter did. Peter did. And when you know it, you realize there's no reason to hide the sin and betrayal of your heart. We're, we're, we're no different today in 2021 than either Peter or Judas. We have and we will betray Jesus by our words and by our actions. But where there is sin, we run to Jesus. We run to Jesus knowing there's grace, knowing there's forgiveness. 
We run to Jesus because it's only him who can restore us back to fellowship. Consider Peter one more time. After after this betrayal and after the resurrection, as Peter and the boys are fishing, Jesus approaches the shoreline. And immediately, who jumps out of the boat? Who jumps into the water? Who runs towards the shore, towards Jesus? It's Peter. Peter runs to Jesus. Peter runs to Jesus. And and John's gospel in chapter 21 captures this incredible moment of Jesus and Peter having breakfast by the lake as Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you what? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter, Peter responds, yes, Lord. Three times Peter denied Jesus and three times Jesus asked Peter of his love. And in this moment, Jesus is recommissioning Peter into a life of service and purpose. Peter's slate has been wiped clean. It's a fresh start. It's a new beginning. This is who our God is, the one in his kindness and mercy, never allowing our own defeats and failures to have the final word on our lives. Jesus makes all things new as we come to him in repentance. And as a a father myself of three young kids, as an earthly father, when I see, especially my five-year-old, my oldest, a kindergartner, struggle in this life, unable to maybe do something or accomplish something or make a mistake and refuse to like correct it. Man, my heart is broken. I so desperately want to reach out and to solve whatever is wrong in her life. My heart, my only thing in my heart is that my little girl makes it in this life. That's my heart. A heart of compassion that she would make it. And that's me as an earthly father, far less than our heavenly father in heaven, who has nothing more than wanting to reach down and have compassion as you turn to him in repentance and faith. This is the heart of Jesus. May we be a people quick to repent and turn to him in faith, clinging to the promises of his provision on the cross and the empty tomb. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you in this moment. Considering our own lives and the ways in which we do deny and betray you with our words or actions. Oh, we consider the forgiveness and compassion that you have for the sinner. Oh, we're blown away. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that sees your heart and desires to come back to our Heavenly Father who loves us. May that be true of us as a people. And may we point others to this reality that they may find this as well. So in your precious name we pray. Amen.